In the Casbah of Tangier, Samuel Longhorn Clemens, better known as Mark Twain, sweaty as nitroglycerin, drunk as a skunk, and just as smelly, resided in his stained white suit on a loose mattress that bled goose down and dust, and by lamplight he pondered the loss of his shoes and the bloated body of his pet monkey, Huck Finn. <laughs> Huck lay on the only bookshelf in the little sweat hole, and he was swollen and beaded with big blue flies. A about the size and shape of a fig was hanging out of his and his tongue protruded from his mouth as if it were hoping to crawl away to safety. He still wore the little red hat with chin strap and the green vest Twain had put on him, but the red shorts with that cut out for business were missing. Twain was uncertain what had done the old boy in, but he was dead and pantless for whatever reason and had managed in a final gastronomic burst to stick that one fig-sized to one of the two books on the shelf, Moby Dick. And his distended tongue lay not far from the other book, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, written by Twain's good friend Jules Verne. Huck, bookended by sea stories, lay in dry dock. Joe R. Lansdale is the author of novels that include The Night Runners, The Bottoms, Lost Echoes, Sunset and Sawdust, and Mucho Mojo. His latest novel is Leather Maiden. Thank you for joining me, Joe. Thank you for having me. Joe, your new novel starts out with a new character for you. Right. Um, and, but he's not totally new because he's got a, a, a history, a lineage, so to speak. That's right. He's connected to uh, Sunset uh, Jones out of Sunset and Sawdust, a previous novel. He's kinfolk. Now, what made you decide to start off with a, a, a new protagonist? Because uh, the way I see this, it seems like a, a pretty darn good setup for a series. Yeah, well, I thought about that, but uh, it didn't occur to me when I started. It occurred to me afterward, the same way with the Hap Collins and Leonard Pine series. I just wrote a, a book I wanted to write and realized I had characters that would be good for uh, future novels. And that's kind of the way I'm looking at this. Well, tell us about creating this character because he's come back from the Iraq War and there's a he has a lot of baggage both before and, and after the war. And I'm wondering uh, how you captured that, that feel of the Talking Iraq Talking to some uh, Iraqi vets that were kids that I knew that I'd grown up with, some of who I'd taught martial arts to, as well as uh, I got a feel for the character through the newspaper because my son works at the newspaper. He's a reporter. So those stories from those kids and then my son telling me how the uh, the paper there worked and the fact that I also bumped the paper up a little bit and gave them a big newspaper morgue, which ours does not have. But all of these things and these factors and the lady he works for, Miss Timpson, is based on two or three people I've known uh, that talk very much like she does. So I just kept finding these characters as I was writing this and it, it came together and I'm, I'm pretty pleased with it. It's really a, an entertaining book, and also what I like about it, and I want to talk to you about this, is that you have a really great way of treating a lot of very current events in this and, and discussions, big discussions, morality discussions that are happening right now in our nation. And you have a way of, of talking about them that's kind of offhand and very casual, yet you make your point. Well, I think current events can't help but you know weigh in when you write. Someone says no matter if you're writing science fiction or fantasy, you're always writing about now. I think you can overdo it to the point that it dates the book, but I also think sometimes you have to follow your you know your passions and and so for me these things were important uh, in Italy they they gave me a prize one time called the Granzani Prize for Literature and I said well what does it really mean and they said it means that you've put social issues into noir fiction <laughs> <laughs> well tell us about some of the social issues you put into this noir fiction well I think that there's a lot of uh, a lot of a variety of things and certainly it's the war and I, I didn't go into a debate on whether it was a, a proper or improper although I certainly think it's improper but I, I went into a, a feel for how a character coming back from this war might feel with the experiences of the kids that I spoke with I mean you always hear the kind of upbeat positive thing about it but the kids I was talking to that's not what they were telling me and uh, so I use some of that aspect of it but I also use the current events of of what I think there's a lot of uh, I guess time given these days to uh, where are we in the black and white 
relationship? How are things going there? You know, and, and a lot of this is because we now have uh, a man running for president and maybe the president of the United States that uh, just uh, 10 years ago wouldn't have had a, the opportunity to even be nominated, let alone win. So there are a lot of current events going on at the same time, and I just sort of let myself be a conduit for all of this. and. And uh, more like more like flypaper, things just stuck to me, and then I used them, the dead flies. Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about some of these conversations you had with these these young Iraqi yeah. vets coming back. Yeah. When you're you're a writer, and they they all know that I, I've got to guess. Yeah. Um, do you sit down and do you record them? Do you? No, I had no idea I was going to use anything they they told me, and I didn't use all of it. Literally, I more or less because uh, I didn't want to, uh, you know, take advantage of any situation like that. Because some of these kids had seen some bad stuff and been through some things, so I just sort of took what they told me in general and uh, sort of put it. I put it all together into one character, as well as a, a variety of other influences. Well. It, one of the things I think that that's interesting about this is is you have two different characters actually who have come back, and right. they're very very different types of people. Well, I know the character <laughs> like the other one too, Booger, who was happy to be there, and not just because uh, you know that he wanted to support the country. He had he he enjoyed the work, and perhaps in Booger's case, he enjoyed it too much. Uh, I think there's a line that uh, becomes not just you know doing what your country asked or. Uh, but but the fact that there are some people that are in a perfect situation in in war or in uh, uh, riots or things of that nature because they're only looking for that moment when their sociopathic tendencies can arise. And I don't mean to imply that people that are soldiers are that, but I, apply, I will say that it's just like the population. There's always that percentage. And when they get put in that situation they're with no... Uh, strict restrictions sometimes then some bad things happen and this guy he came back and he had a great time and uh, he's ready to kill anything just because he enjoys killing well, one thing that that i think is really interesting in your book you know we're talking about some fairly weighty issues here yeah. and but this book is really fun yeah i i, <laughs> I hope so i i tried to not just make it a a tome of of grim Things I, I tried to, as you said, touch on them. I always think it's kind of like, uh, you know, the little butterfly dips in here and there, but he doesn't stay on that flower all that long. He moves on. Well, uh, could you talk about your sense of humor? Your your prose is, I think, uh, some of the most peerless uh, humor writing that, that we've seen in a long, long time. Well, that's nice of you to say. I, I, I guess the thing, it, where, where I grew up in Gladewater, a lot of people used humor to kind of deflate uh, everyday problems or uh, to put things into perspective. And I also believe that when I was growing up uh, that, like, my father couldn't read or write. And I think that a lot of his generation, especially the ones who had been raised in poor and uh, and, and less uh, uh I guess you would say fortunate circumstances had often because they didn't write and because they didn't read had learned to use metaphors and similes to express themselves and I think that a lot of that affected the way uh, I saw the world and also writers like Mark Twain and, and Flannery O'Connor all had a, a very interesting sense of humor so I think that that connected with where I grew up connected with my my father's past and a lot of my relatives who use this hyperbole, this Texas hyperbole, or as they often say in Texas, hyperbole. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, let's talk about where you grew up. It, yeah. This is this, is this in East Texas? Is this East Texas, right? Nacogdoches. I didn't actually grow up in Nacogdoches. I lived there. I grew up in a place called Gladewater, which is a. Uh, uh, even smaller is about 4,000 uh, people. And Mount Enterprise, uh, which had 100 and something. I, when I was a kid, I was born in Gladewater, moved to this town about 150 people at that time. I think it's booming now with 450. But it was kind of like growing up in Mayberry. And then when I moved to Gladewater, it was an old oil town. So it was a little, it was only about four or 5,000 people, I think. But it was a rougher environment. So I had, I sort of had these different uh, experiences, a sort of duality of Andy Griffith. And it wasn't like West Side Story with gangs or anything, although there had been a little bit of that prior to my coming there. Uh, but there was just uh, a, a much grittier, rougher sort of element that had come there during the oil boom. And when the oil played out, a lot of that element stayed there. Some of it was a good element and some of it was a not so good element. 
Well, give us a sense of the geography of East Texas. Is it flat, mountainous? No, no, no. You know, and it's funny is that uh, it's so hard to, to break people from thinking that even when you tell them. You know, uh, I've had books with the covers, and they'll talk about the trees which are there, and water. lumber is one of our biggest industries. And it talks about the uh, lumber and the water and, and, and the fact that there are all kinds of snakes or even alligators. Uh, there's thorns, all stuff. And you can't hardly break people from still thinking, no matter when you say that, of uh, really Utah that they saw in the movies as Texas, they they tend to think of it the way that movies have sort of ingrained it. I remember when the the uh, shuttle blew up over Nacogdoches. That's where it blew up, and uh, we found pieces of it in our yard. But I remember when there were reporters coming from everywhere. I remember seeing some reporters. I don't remember who they were affiliated with at the time, standing in front of trees and water glistening in the background, said, here on the windswept plains of Texas. And I thought, huh, they just can't let it go. Even when they're standing there, they can't let it go. They could have had an alligator under their arm, and they would have still said it, yeah. Well, uh, how closely are the towns located to one another, and what, do you have, like, freeways between them? I'm just trying to get a um, sense of what there, it's there like. There are starting, starting to be more of that. but mo- Now, freeways would be the wrong word. They're mostly highways, and then they're... Um, you know, there's still back road towns, too. Uh, I, I travel through a lot of those. When I go from Nacogdoches to Tyler, I take a back route that takes me through places like Cushing and uh, uh, Recklaw, which is Walker spelled backwards, really, <laughs> and uh, places like that. And they're they're really off the beaten path, and they're just little bergs. So there are a lot of those. In East Texas, there's a, there's a large number of small towns that are relatively near one another, but uh, they have been, up until recent years, a little bit more isolated. That's changing because of, of uh, traffic patterns and the fact that highways are being built. And I, it's kind of good in one way and another way. It's sad to see a lot of that loss because there was a lot of really interesting uh, people and the environment was left more untouched, which I, you know, I sort of enjoyed that too. You could go there and you could see all kinds of animals and things of that nature. And we used to have trees that were so huge you'd have several men could grip their arms and put them around that tree. Well, we still have lots of trees, but those kind of trees are gone now. They've been lumbered out. Well, tell us uh, about you've written about this this landscape across uh, uh, you know a lot of history. Yeah. You've got sunset and uh, sawdust, which is set back at, towards the end of the old west days. You, you've got uh, the bottoms, right. which is depression era. So tell tell us a little about understanding your how your understanding and experience of the environment has informed your ability to deal with it across changes of you know 100, what, 150 years I think the environment affects how people develop and who they are I think when you have a darker circumstances and w- this watery circumstance I think it gives a more gothic feel that doesn't mean that everybody's perhaps are necessarily uh, you know sad all the time because that's certainly not the case there's nobody funnier than East Texans they are they really a, they have a terrific sense of humor and they're very witty but uh, I think that a lot of things that go on there though uh, it provides a great backdrop especially as a crime writer or a writer of suspense or anything to of that nature to use the environment to give the mood and the feel same with weather uh, people say there's a lot of weather in your books just the opposite of Mark Twain one of my heroes who said in Huckleberry Finn you won't find any weather in this book or Elmo Leonard, Elmo Leonard said never use weather never start with weather but I, I find, and I notice James Lee Burke does this too, and that's because both of us are constantly assaulted by weather. And it rains all the time, it, or it rains frequently. You can have a tornado at the drop of a hat. Uh, of course, in, in some ways, we all look out at California and go, boy, I'd hate to live out there. It's scary out there, all those fires and everything. And then we're living with all of the you know, the rain and the lightning and the, uh, the tornadoes. But I, they, they can, it can be clear one minute and then raining like hell the next. And I think that all of this is something that provides a backdrop, not only for the fiction, but I think that people are affected by this and how they live. Because we, we have every poisonous snake in the United States, in Texas, in East Texas, rather. And uh, we have scorpions, we have all kinds of bees. And somebody, one of the, the reporters that I spoke to personally that was there during the shuttle actually said, there isn't anything out here that doesn't bite you or sting you or poke you, uh, you know, so he was really complaining because they were, they were out in the woods, of course, uh, and uh, we had people come from other places that were, of course, helping find uh, the remains of the astronauts and the remains of the uh, shuttle, and uh, a number of them said, you know, it's, it's really kind of scary out there, and when they were looking for the 
remains of the astronauts, they found six bodies of people they didn't know who they were. One of them was somebody who had wandered off from, as an, an Alzheimer's patient, but the others, they don't know who they were. The people were probably murdered or dumped or died or whatever. So uh, it's a much more rugged environment than, than people think. You know, because all you see is the highway and the town. You don't see sometimes off to the edge what's going on. people who, who live in East Texas. Uh, I, we all have kind of, I, I presume, one kind of picture of them. Right. And, and maybe you could tell us how accurate that picture is and how your experience of, you know, this environment and living here mm-hmm. your entire life has informed your ability to create those people and make them really fascinating characters. Well, I, I think one of the things, is these are the people I know, and uh, they're the people I deal with every day, and that there's an old adage, write what you know. And I think that's part of it. But a lot of these people that came there, uh, at least originally, and, and of course that's starting to change as everything else changes, but a lot of these people were the descendants of pioneers or they were people who came there because living was cheaper and easier. And so you have this wide variety of people, many of them very independent-minded. I, I think that I, I was talking to one of my escorts who I believe was from Los Angeles, and she's saying her her husband, and uh, they moved there. He was from New York. And said, wasn't what they expected. They were actually in Houston, which borders us, but it, this applies. Said that they were much friendlier and more open-minded than they ever expected. Said they, you know, there's a lot of conservative views in, in Texas, but that they're very open-minded about, oh, you want to believe that? That's fine. They love talking about it. And, and that's pretty much the experience I've had because I'm sort of like a duck out of water uh, because you know I'm a uh, liberal Democrat for all, uh, I guess I, I really don't like to label myself, but I come closer to that. Uh, but you know it doesn't seem to be a problem with anybody. And we, uh, I think it's because most people what they appreciate is your independence and your being who you want to be because this is what you've chosen to be. And I like that about that part of the country, especially. This uh, sense of independence, um, could you talk about how it informs your novels and some of the characters that you've created? I mean, let's talk about Hap and Leonard. I mean, they are not... Uh, that's not a pair you'd expect to find no. in in any kind of Texas fiction, no. to tell the truth. Well, you know, the, the I think that it had a, a tremendous effect on me because I think I'm very independent-minded. And uh, I, I was raised to be that way. I was raised to be a Texan first and an American second. And most people in Texas are. I mean, that that's uh, just the truth of the matter. You're a Texan, damn it. And uh, I know when I go overseas, people say, where are you from? I say, Texas. Always, I never think. And then I go, oh, well, the USA. But Texas is where we think of. And, and when, we, when I was growing up, Texas history was a big part of what we studied. We went to school. Uh, people think of themselves that way. And, and it's probably because Texas was originally a country. 
you know, it was its own country for m- many years and had a president and all of that. So, and we have certain things that we agreed that to keep even when we became a, a state, like we can fly our flag on the same height as the United States flags and a lot of things like that. So I think this sort of independence is absolutely part of who I am, and it it gives me a feel when I write. I don't feel like I'm 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 out here to satisfy other people. Exactly. I mean, I hope I do. I write a book. I hope people love it. But when I write, there's only one audience I'm thinking about, and that's me because it's the only audience I know. Well, tell us about uh, creating Hap and Leonard. What, how did you come about these two characters? Well, Hap is based on me. There's no doubt about that, especially if I had taken a, a dumber path and had not married my wife, uh, who really helped me you know, out. But uh, Hap has done all the rotten jobs I've done, the rose fields and bouncing and uh, the aluminum chair factories. And, and the ones that I haven't done, I had friends who did the chicken factory and or the chicken plant and things like that. So I learned about that from them. And I wanted to write about a character that was very much an East Texas guy that had some of the experiences I had. I was, uh, you know, against the Vietnam War and, and was uh, uh, drafted but ended up not having to go. And my, my I didn't end up going to prison like Hap, but it was in the wings if other things hadn't quite worked out. So I based a lot of him on me. Leonard is based on two or three people I know that were gay and, and well, still gay, and they're in East Texas or were in East Texas. And I also, one day I was watching television and I saw, uh, it was a, a, a black a pundit on television talking about uh, Republicans, and he was a Republican. And this has been some years ago, but at that time Republicans were as rare as chicken teeth. You know, you didn't see them. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. And so that sort of gave me the idea for that particular character. And you will actually find lots of black Republicans in East Texas. That's really not that amazing. You'll find more Democrats, but you certainly will find them. Well, when you started, created these characters, um, did you know you wanted to put them in a suspense series? Did you just sit down and write the first novel? No, it's like I was talking about Leather Maiden earlier. Mm -hmm. I just like these characters. And then later on when I finished, I thought, huh, uh, I know I remember I, I had a contract at that time with Mysterious Press, which was a division of Warner Books, which is, has sold out since and is Grand Central. But um, I had written Savage Season, and it was three years later, and I started writing this book, and it was a, it was a pretty good book, but I was unhappy with it, and I don't know why at the time. I put it aside, and I said, you know, I'm, I am really keep thinking about this other character, Hap Collins, and I started letting him talk, and I wrote Mucho Mojo, the second book in the series, and then it was a series, and I loved them. And uh, now I've gone six years now without writing one, but a new one has been, or having one come out, but a new one has been written, and it comes out next year from Kanaf. It's called Vanilla Ride. Wow, I'm looking yeah. forward to yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> and they just picked up the whole backlist for vintage. Wow, well, that'll be great. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, so as, a, as an East Texan, tell us what HAP does that, you know, in terms of the kinds of, uh, crimes he comes across. How that kind of you use that those crimes to evoke the the feel of where you live. Well, I, most of the crimes are generally something that starts out very simple, and it becomes more complex, like life does. You know, the, no good turn goes unpunished, or they start to do something. And Happen Leonard are, are not the perfect guys. They, you know, I, I see them as as only heroic because they're more heroic than the rest of the characters. Uh, they certainly have good hearts and they have a g- good heroic intentions, but they do some things that, you know, I obviously wouldn't do. Uh, but they do these to uh, fulfill what they think is is a positive force in the universe, so to speak. But uh, I I borrow heavily from, from the East Texans I know, from the way they talk. I try to bring the environment in because the environment is so important to me as a person living in East Texas. I, you know, not only not just the weather and not just the trees, but the way people cope with the environment and the way the environment shapes those people that happen Leonard encounter and the way the environment has shaped them. I mean, working in the rose fields like I used to gives you a whole new perspective on uh, life. You know, there's people, you, you know, if you're not born with a silver spoon in your mouth, you look at life a little bit different. Unlike uh, John McCain, you probably know how many houses you have. <laughs> yeah, I, barely parts of one. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you have a, a, this new book out here, Leather Maiden. Mm-hmm. Um, it's we have we have some new characters, and, and one of the things I, I wanted to to get back on is is Kason. Mm-hmm. Um, he's 
you have a lot of a really interesting way of of dealing with these char- your characters' backstories and revealing them. Could you talk about revealing a character's backstory as part of constructing the mis- the you know well mystery? The way a person responds to the things that happen to them also is part of how who they are. I mean, uh, if if a certain event happens to to me or or to you or whatever, we have a background to draw on or a certain amount of baggage even to draw on. And so we see these things perhaps differently than someone else because we're coming from a different place. And the way I like to reveal uh, the background on the characters is not in huge clumps, but in, in bits and pieces here and there so that they gradually come together. I also like you to think a character may be strictly one way, and then you gradually begin to realize that, no, there's more depth to that character, more variety to that character's soul. Well, one thing about Kaysen is, in many ways, he starts out, he's not a, a particularly likable no, guy. No, uh, I, And one of the, the things you, that you talk about in this book, that uh, we can talk about without giving away too much, is that sure. he's talk, he's stalking his ex-girlfriend. Yeah, he he, seen, he has a, very, a lot of obsessive, compulsive aspects to his personality. He's kind of like a borderline stalker in the sense that he knows he shouldn't be doing this. He still has these feelings for her. On one level, he, he knows that this is not a good thing, but he still does it. And uh, it gradually, he he's trying he's trying to whether he admits it or not to move the obsession to something else, and that's one reason he becomes so obsessed with this crime, with this mystery, uh, with this problem, and uh, so gradually he's you know that transference is happening. I didn't make a big point of that, but as a writer, I saw it as that what he was gradually doing was transferring these obsessions to a new mistress. And this mistress was this old case of this missing woman that no one had been able to find. This beautiful uh, college, uh, this beautiful co-ed who went to get some fast food one night and they found her car, they found the fast food, but they never found a trace of her. And uh, so he's actually transferring it in many ways to her, or at least to the case. And so his obsessions have, have, have been slightly transferred, if not completely. Well... I think we can also say that there are some people in this book who are are particularly not nice people. Not nice people, absolutely. And and you uh, talk about uh, these kind of people, sociopaths. Right. I I wonder, do you know any people that you would consider sociopaths who are like successful, who are integrate into society? We've all known them. There are plenty, you know. It's not a by name, but you you can have a, a used car salesman. I'm not saying that all used car salesmen are sociopaths, uh, but I'm saying that you could be a used car salesman. You could be a writer. You could be most anything, and you can learn to cope. Sociopath doesn't necessarily mean that you're a murderer, but it means that you don't have the same feelings that other people have about others. That you uh, tend it tends to be about you. But uh, sociopaths and sometimes uh, psychopaths, uh, you know, that's someone else that decides not only can, am I antisocial or do I have or this or it can be very, very socialized, at least in in appearance and be very different underneath. And sometimes they go even darker. And that's when you get into the uh, the very psychopathic personalities. As a writer, when you're creating these kind of uh, unpleasant people, you you also want the reader to to like them enough to want to be around them. Well, and and if you don't, there's a whole thing. They don't have to like them. They have to be interested in them. And if they like them, that's okay. But I I often find that, like, uh, James Cain, one of my favorite writers, wrote these despicable people, like in The Postman Rings Twice and Double Indemnity, but they were fascinating and they were interesting. You know, I didn't like them, but I just thought, man, this is, it's sort of like watching a snake that's about to strike. You know, you can't help but be mesmerized. Did you do much research into uh, some of the background, the psychology of these people? I have done it before for other books, so I didn't really have to do that so much as just uh, sort of, you know, uh, pick up on the stuff that I had already researched and bring it forth. There were a lot of things that I'd research, and there'd be pieces of it that I didn't use or that I didn't think were appropriate, but they would stick in the back of my head, and later on they would find their way into other books.
this book has a, a lot of stories within stories in this right. book. And it's, I think almost they're kind of like Texan tall tales. Yeah, and there's some that are true. There's a there's a story I can tell that won't hurt. There's a, the two ladies that lived in this old house really lived in an old house in Nacogdoches, and I didn't get to go into a great detail, but they had been uh, the children of rich people, and they had never been taught to work or do anything because they were proper women. And so when times changed and their parents died and the money went away, they didn't have a lot of money, so they started, uh, they wouldn't ask for charity, but they would take food from trash cans. And so once people found that out and they tried to give them things which they wouldn't take, they started putting the food in the trash cans and, and the, the old ladies started getting it out. And uh, later on, they had to sell their house, and I used this house in the book and some of this background, not all of it that I'm telling you. And then they moved to another house that caught on fire, and when the firemen came to save them, because they were in their nightgowns and they were proper women, they wouldn't come out the window, and therefore they burned to death. Well, these are real people. This is not a tall tale. That's the thing about Texas. You tell these things, and I've had so many people say, oh, that part you made up. And no, that part was real. Uh, I had a novel called The Big Blow, currently not in print, something I hope to remedy soon, where at the Galveston hurricane, from research I had done, this couple, when the hurricane was coming, had taken their baby's hand and nailed it to a post as high as they could. And the baby survived. And that was a real piece that I put in this book because it was the way they saved their child. You know, now that's... That's a, don't you know that was a powerful choice to make? But the child lived. And I put that in, in, the, in the book. People thought I made that up. But that's supposed to be a real story. Wow. <laughs> that's pretty incredible. And I have to say that when I read the story of the two sisters in the, the book, I thought, great tall tale yeah. material. <laughs> and, and I actually cut back on it because there was so much stuff that was so wild that I felt like I couldn't get away with it in the book. And also, I, I didn't want to distract from the rest of the story. Or When I first wrote it, it was originally uh, probably 20 pages longer about them, but I felt that it, it went on too long and, and got too far away from the, the center of the story. I'm not someone who is afraid to digress. I do that in books or to tell stories within stories because that's the kind of stuff I, I've always enjoyed. I loved Mark Twain for that. I love so many other writers that did that. But in this case, I felt like I had perhaps gone overboard. One of the things that you talk about in this book is the idea, the problems of the Podunk Police Department. Right. Well, a lot of the police departments, small police departments, they can be very professional, but a lot of people don't realize that what makes a lot of these police departments good at what they do is money. And if you live in a podunk town, you may not have that money. You know, you see on CSI, everybody finds a you know, they find a fart in the living room and they know it comes from Jack who lives in, you know, San Francisco. And But in real life, it's not that way. It's, uh, you know, certainly you could, there's, it's an amazing thing, but you don't always get your answers overnight. Some of these police departments can't even afford to do it, uh, let alone, you know, get these answers. And, and so many of them are still working with such backwards views and equipment. And even the ones that are more advanced and, and, and want to do better don't always have the money to do the things that they would like to do and know that they should do. So a lot of that is, uh, you know, is a way of touching the center or the truth of the way things are now. So that you, you, it, costs, it costs a lot of money to do these really expensive uh, CSI type of uh, investigations. And, and one of the, the aspects of every mystery is is the kind of unveiling of the plans, and there are two sets of plans, and I realize this, and, and you do this very well in this book, that, that kind of like interlock, and it's a, it's a fascinating uh, literary technique, and I want to talk about it. When you have the protagonists making plans, mm -hmm. and that you, you will kind of unveil what they're going to do, and at the same time, you have the antagonists making plans as well, and how we find that out. Could you talk about those kind of complementary literary techniques? I don't want to talk too much about it to give away too much, no. but what I would say is that uh, it's not something that I was so consciously aware of being a great literary technique. I was just trying to make that damn story work, you know, and it struck me as this was a, an effective way of doing it, and uh, 
So I was very pleased when it when it came together as well as it did. But I think to me, there's always a thematic aspect to a book, which sometimes some of the crime books I'm reading is missing to me. And I, I there was this whole thing about while you're making plans, someone else is making other plans, and sometimes your plans and theirs are not going to cross comfortably if they do cross. And I thought from a literary standpoint, it was kind of fun to have this sort of chaotic universe going on, but yet still in the heart of it, there were these people trying to shape it to fit their notions of what they wanted. Now, we I've read a, a, quite a few um, mysteries, and one thing I, I note about most mysteries is that the killing that happens happens without... Uh, much consequence or thought on the on the part of, of the players, mm-hmm. but you set up a really interesting dichotomy here between Booger and um, Kaysen. Could you talk right. about that? Well, one for one thing is that Booger, in some ways, is not a whole lot different than those that they are dealing with or that Booger helps him with. Booger, in fact, sees their side of it. Uh, he <laughs> thinks it's all very amusing in his own way, and so it's it's what I was saying about Happ and Leonard sometimes, although it's more so with Kaysen is that he's using a pretty dark tool to handle this, which would be Booger, this situation. But in some ways, he's doing the same thing they're doing, except he thinks he's on the side of the angels, or at least the better side. And I, and, I, and he is, you know, from the book's viewpoint. He definitely is on the better side. But he's willing to take a dark and uh, sort of negative well, I don't know if you could call Booger negative. He's having a hell of a good time. But from his viewpoint, Booger just doesn't care. But the only person he seems to care for is this this Case and Statler character because they were in Iraq together. And he's told him himself, he says, you know, I'm a goddamn sociopath. And he tells him that. And he may not be completely because he has feelings for a couple of people, but certainly what he does for uh, uh, Case and he doesn't do out of any feeling of morality. He does it because it seems interesting to him. And Kaysen himself is not so easygoing when it comes to, to pulling a gun, is he? No. He, you know, the the thing I think that there's a big difference is he has a conscience and he's affected by what has happened, what he's done in Iraq. And uh, just that, you know, he, he knows that what it's like for people to die and to see people dead. And it means something to him. It's not just a game with him. And uh, many of the people in this book, the uh, antagonists, see the world or see the universe as something of a big game. And uh, Kaysen maybe is dealing with, maybe realizing maybe it is a big game, but he's trying to find his place inside of it. Uh, you talk uh, uh, on the peripheries of, of our you know, current interest in, in the, the racial relations right. here. And you bring in uh, some of the religious themes as well. Right. And could you talk about how those – you have these things playing out in a, a small town in Texas. Have you seen that kind of thing yes. play out? Yes, but maybe not to the degree that I'm using it here, but I certainly have. I, I, I My feelings are is that people have the absolute right to any religion that they want to believe. I just get bothered when it becomes part of politics or it becomes part of education. Because even then you decide which religion is it that's influencing politics? Which religion is it influencing education? So how do you know that yours is the one or whatever? So I just think those things should be separate. And I see this intermingling uh, more and more and more of people saying, in Texas they're discussing teaching uh, 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 intelligent design as part of uh, education. And for me, there's absolutely, you know, no evidence of this being true. It, if you want to believe it from a faith standpoint, then of course you're welcome to. But I think things like that uh, are becoming more and more uh, overwhelming to the, to the point to where science is becoming less and less important, where uh, logic is becoming less and less important. And I don't want to see those things mixed into our politics or into our education. I think there's a difference in having ethics and morality, but which religion is it? Even when people say, we want Christianity in politics, well, which one? Uh, Church of Christ? Or, and then they'll argue with each other and tell you which one's right. So to me, that eliminates that. that even if one of them is right, it eliminates it because nobody knows which one is. You have received seven Bram Stoker Awards. Yeah, um, you're well known as a horror writer, and I, I was. I read the first half of this book, and I said, I was went to my wife. You'll love this book. I got about a little bit further, and I'm just thinking. No, not for her. <laughs> yeah. So tell me about using horror in mysteries. It's like funny this. you mention that too, because someone told me this that they thought it was going to be a horror book, 
They said they were reading it and they thought that there was a hint of something else there that was going to happen. And what I like to do is use the techniques of both horror and crime. Because in a, in a sense, it is a horror book, but it's, it's, uh, it's using realistic horrors. But um, I use those techniques because I think they're powerful and effective. And I sort of like to walk that line where the reader can feel that it could step over at either time into one or the other. Um, you're a guy who wears a lot of hats. Um, you created your own martial art. That's right. And, and I wonder if you talk about this and tell us how that informs your writing. Well, uh, first of all, when I was 11 years old, my father, who was a boxer and a wrestler, started teaching me martial arts to defend myself from bullies in school. I got into judo and then hapkido and kempo and all these things. So I've been at this 46 years. About 15 years ago, I realized I was blending them. A friend of mine, Eugene Frizzell, said, you know, you're not really teaching any one art anymore. You're teaching your own thing. And I had met and knew a, a number of grandmasters in different systems and Hapkido and different things. And they looked at what I was doing and says, man, you're doing your own thing. So I formed my own system and gradually, like the International Martial Arts Hall of Fame accepted it as a system. And I've been teaching it. I'm starting to have people teaching it outside of our school. I'm not doing it in a big way because I don't want it to be the McDonald's of martial arts. It's, uh, it's, it's something else. But... I think it informs my writing very much. I think it gives me a lot of discipline. I think it gives me a tremendous amount of confidence. I think it teaches me economy of motion and deception. And deception in self-defense is good, but and deception as a novelist is good, where you think something's going on and it's something else. Or when it's look at the birdie over here when you got something happening over here. <laughs> same thing as a magician does in, the same, in some sense. Now, one of the other hats you wear is is as uh, you know a, a guy who writes really weird fiction, yeah. uh, and um, I'm thinking of Zeppelin's West. Right. <laughs> I read this to, to my the, the, the you know parts of the book to my wife, and she's just going, "What? <laughs> what?" Now, <laughs> yeah. you, you were the, as it happens, that was like the you know the one of the birthing cries of uh, what is now a very popular uh, form, kind of subgenre, steampunk. And I, I want to yeah. talk about that. Well, steampunk has been around a lot longer than I have, but uh, I think that it, it kind of ebbs and wanes. You know, you'll, you'll have it for a while. I mean, uh, K.W. Jeter did some stuff in the late 70s, early 80s, I forget. And there have been many others, James Blaylock. been a lot more people who have invested more in that than I have. And I never really even realized I was doing that particular thing. I didn't sit down and say, I'm going to do something steampunk. I just started writing this story, and I wanted the influences of Jules Verne and H.G. Wells and the Old West, the dime novels, all of that to sort of come together. And I just let, played it by ear. And I did the same thing with the sequel, Flame in London. And there's a, a new book that will come out uh, not too long called uh, The Sky Done Ripped, which is the end of the trilogy. Wow. Now, is that going to be coming out from Subterranean Press? Yes, Subterranean Press. 
you're a guy who publishes with a, a lot of different publishers. I think mm-hmm. it's really interesting. I mean, c- because I was, uh, you know, here is, is Knopf, which is mm-hmm. the, the the haute literary, you know, uh, yeah, it's, imprint is the top. It's it's the top, and, and you've got these wonderful noir novels from there, and, and you've got subterranean press. Could you talk about the various publishers you use and how you, as a writer and a businessman, make yeah. judge who well, goes where? Well, you know, some of it too is that certain publishers crisscross as you change publishers you know like I'm doing a lot, all of my major novels for Knopf now and uh, the the difference is is that I had uh, some novels from uh, Mysterious Press that had to gradually go out of print before I could get the rights back and so that way I had two companies there. Subterranean tends to do the books that probably aren't the sort of books that would sell particularly well for uh, you know Random House and Knopf and places like that so i I like doing those books for them, and, and I can write shorter books. I can write weirder books. I've never even made any effort to try to get paperback sales for them, but that may change in the future. I've just enjoyed doing them. Um, I'm concentrating more and more now on the Knopf books and finishing up some of the uh, agreements that I made with Subterranean and other other places, but uh, I'm probably going to do most of my novels hereafter for them, but I'm short stories, i I I'm just insane for short stories. I love them. They're my favorite form of writing. If I could make a living doing just short stories, I would probably write nothing else. Well, tell us about your short stories and your work, too, as an editor. Yeah, I, well, short stories, like I said, I when I was a kid, I wanted to be a, a writer so bad. Edgar Rice Burroughs was my, is my, still my sentimental favorite writer. And uh, so I wanted to write novels, and so I... I, 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 I I didn't have quite the ability to do it yet, so I said, well, I'll write something shorter. And it turned out that they're they're just as hard. You know, someone said a novel's an easy way to write a short story. I think it was Somerset Mom. I'm not sure, though. I won't quote that. But the, uh, the thing is, is that I began to write the short stories hoping that I would have less investment of time and I could gain experience. And what happened is I started writing them. I learned how hard they were and how difficult and how interesting they were. But I liked the ability to move from one type of story to another in a limited or short period of time. And the editing, I, I, that just grew out of love for short stories. Well, you've written a variety of short stories. And I'm just thinking back on, on some of the ones that I think were real landmarks in the you know late twentieth century horror, the night they missed the horror show, which yeah, a I, lot of people seem to think so. I hope they're right. <laughs> and now there's an image in that story, which is of somebody's feet heels disappearing beneath the water, yeah. and that comes back in your latest novel, yeah. actually, doesn't yeah. it? Was that yeah. deliberate? You know, it's an image that has stuck with me. I don't know that it was deliberate when I did it, but I think I've probably done that two or three times and that uh, writers tend to mine some of the same ground a lot of times when I mine it I do do it purposely but in this case I'd have to say that was just uh, accidentally do you do uh, graphic novels and, and I do comics? I, I do write comics I've written a lot of them I've written screenplays comics uh, I wrote Batman the animated series oh right right because I have one of the Batman novels the, yeah the, 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 I, oh and yeah, I wrote yeah. Batman novels I, I but I wrote for the television show too uh-huh. um yeah, I love comic books. Comic books are the most important thing I ever read. When I was a kid, comic books, in a sense, formed me as as a writer, and they gave me this feeling that you could do anything, that you could mix any genre, and that they were full of color, and that they were full of energy. And so comic books, to me, are the most important thing that I ever discovered as a writer. Now, uh, could you talk about the difference between writing a novel for Knopf, uh, short stories... Uh, and uh, a comic for uh, DC, presumably, mm-hmm. and um, one of the subterranean uh, wild, wild stuff. Do, do you write in a longhand or? No, I I write directly on the word processor. And, and my my way of thinking is that I, they're all the same. You just do the best you can on everything you write. And I, I never think I'm writing lesser or, or 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 greater. I just think I'm writing the story I want to tell right now. One of the things that I think you do quite well and you do this in in your books you write these incredibly dark books i there is no reader who is going to look at this book you you start the, your newest book and you think okay well that's an interesting that's an interesting title that's an interesting book mm-hmm. you finish that book and you go oh my god <laughs> yeah but there are there are a lot of moments of i think kind of sweet awareness and and 
not quite joy. You come close. To yeah, they're it. bittersweet, I guess. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like that you can't just hit one note all the time. Uh, you might be able to pull that off in a short story because it's a, it's a more of a shorter period of time. It can be more experimental. But I think novels, you have to have, it's got to be an experience like life. It has its ups and downs. It has its humor. It has its dark moments. Uh, so to me, variety is the spice of writing, and variety is the spice of a novel. And finally, I want to talk to you. You're known as a horror writer. By some. By some. And science fiction. Uh, yeah. And uh, mystery. Crime. crime. Yeah. Could you talk about genre, how you feel about it? I, I suppose that genre has its place in the sense that people like to be able to go to where they're comfortable. Uh, but I think the drawback there is that many people miss so many good reads because they've decided that they like a certain thing. I myself don't think of myself as a genre writer, but not in the sense that I'm too good for genre, because I think of myself as being a, a genre that's unlisted, and that's the Lansdale genre. And that genre may, in fact, write a crime. I may write a crime novel. I may write a horror novel. I may write a science fiction piece. I may write fantasy, whatever. But always, for me, I'm not thinking, am I fitting into this genre? I just write the book I want to write and hope like hell when I get through with it that others like it. But when I'm writing it, I'm writing it for me, and I'm writing it to belong in the Lansdale genre. When, once you've written it, though, you you have to sell it. And, and yes. You, could you talk about the considerations that you have to go through? I mean, yeah. Uh, well, I you know, I, I probably should consider more. I don't much. And that's been both a, a, a burden and a curse. Um, you know, I think, and many people have told me, says, you know, if you just stuck to one kind of novel, you would have really, really been big. And uh, But, you know, I'm doing very well, and I'm enjoying what I'm doing. And at some point, how much money do you need, you know? And uh, so I've just always found that I just followed, like Ray Bradbury said, follow your excitement. And that's what I've done, and it's always worked for me. I've been speaking with Joe R. Lansdale. His new book is A Leather Maiden. Thank you for joining me, Joe. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. speaking with Cecilia Holland here at SF and SF. Thank you for joining me, Cecilia. Thank you very much. Cecilia, your works are generally uh, historical fiction, but with elements of science fiction shot through some of them. Um, yeah, I, I don't think they're any, actually in any one class. I like history a lot, but I, I love fiction more than anything. And good fiction is science fiction or historical fiction or whatever. It's just fiction. Now, tell me about some of the similarities, though, between the historical world-building that you do and how that kind of uh, feeds into the worlds of science fiction. Well, it's the same thing. It's a, In order to make the uh, historical fiction work, you have to recreate a world that most people have no access to. That means you have to figure out what it is that's important, and then you have to fit it into a pattern so that people can follow it. And it's the same thing with science fiction. With science fiction, you create a viable world in which people can move around and can see the correspondences and can see the meanings and things without having to be told them. Could you talk to me about developing characters for historical fiction and developing characters for science fiction? Are there any differences for the way you do that? No, I don't think so. You'd, I, I develop characters by having people that I know and working on, working from people that I know, especially if uh, people that I, uh, have done me some wrong, I put them in a book and kill them off. <laughs> uh, but mostly a character just grows on me. And uh, I use start, as I say, with people that I know, but they quickly become people on their own right and uh, a lot of it is the demands of the plot but also it's uh, my my feelings of uh, uh, of life and and what's important and uh, my general feeling that 
that uh, I don't really, I'm a square peg in a, in a round hole, and so are most of my characters. Well, tell us a, a little bit about when, when you create these characters, do they sometimes get out of your control? Totally, absolutely, I want them to. And when they start running faster than I can keep up with them, I'm, I'm so happy. I love, one of the reasons I love to write is I love to go into one of these worlds and live there. And these people become so real for me that the rest, the, that the real world fades away. This is really hard on my kids, but it, uh, not really. My kids are all grown up now. But uh, it, it's the greatest fun is to live in this world and to have all these people around me that are uh, detached from me and that are mysteries to me and to discover them. And uh, the more mysterious, the better. Now, these worlds you create, particularly the historical ones, they're not friendly, fun places to be, and yet you live there, or choose to live there. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, the world isn't a friendly place to be, but it's, it's real, and it's gritty, and it's true. And uh, more than anything, um, what I want to do is, is find out what, what's consistently true from from era to era, from time to time, even into the future. But uh, truth isn't f friendly and fun. Truth is just very hard, very hard to swallow and very hard to see. Now, when you're creating a historical world, do you do a lot of research, and, and how do you incorporate that research into your work? Well, I do. I do a lot of research. I love reading primary sources. For the Viking books, I've read a lot of sagas and all the Eddas and uh, the Viking romances. And I like to go to the places where I'm, I'm writing about and see them. But I don't try to fit it in. I just try to see, soak, soak myself in it and then write from that kind of uh, ambiance, not because I want have some piece of research that I want to use, but because I feel that the research gives us kind of uh, flavor and a kind of force to what I'm doing, and that it must be uh, true because it answers so many of the questions, because most of history, of course, is all huge questions. Nobody really knows anything about anything, and if you can take several pieces of research and make them make sense, maybe you're onto something. So, uh, but I don't like to have it stand out. I don't like to have people notice that I've done it. Um, I like the research to be just sort of insinuated in there, and I like the, the focus to be on the characters. I've been speaking with Cecilia Holland here at SFNSF. Thank you for joining me, Cecilia. Thank you very much.